This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Everything that I do is to try and create space for women to be more vocal. I just wish women would really see the power that they have in them to transform industries like banking, like tech, like government. My guest this week is a proud Syrian-American mompreneur of two and an aspiring chef. Rama Shakaki is a social entrepreneur, impact investor, co-founder of Edseed, and I cannot forget to mention, a nature enthusiast. Her passion, as you'll hear in this conversation, is social development for Arab youth, and she's founded over a dozen tech ventures focused on this. She brings a valuable and much needed perspective that we could all use in life if we truly want to lead and serve. What resonates for me is her ability to use challenging moments as a time for reflection, her leadership in transforming tech, as well as the advice she shares for young women who wish to do the same. Aunt Rama, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I feel like I probably should have asked Tala to come in and help me with the interview, but we can do that another time. I am really looking forward to the conversation. Me too. So I'm going to start with a question that my mom sort of helped me come up with. And she always speaks about how our resumes are not an explanation of who we are as a full person. And knowing that you have a very extensive resume and that you consider yourself a generalist, I'm wondering what is missing from your resume that you think people should know about you? Um, Passion for nature and how much it affect it has affected my life and my relationships and how much i feel the older i grow the more i learn from nature about how human interaction ought to happen for mm-hmm. for us to have this very full and rich life so i i consider my time in nature sacred because i'm constantly learning from everything around me and then taking that learning and applying it in my day-to-day interactions with people I like that. I like that. I, th- I think it's always more interesting when people describe who they are to you instead of you sort of deciding who they are from what they said. Could you give us a brief description of who you are? Sure. Um, so first and foremost, a mother. I feel like the relationship that I've had with Tala and Abudi has really defined me as a human being. Caring for another uh, just makes you grow and grow in a way that I think is more really guided by them than than you as a parent. So uh, one thing, um, since I was a young mother, I was 21 or 22 when I had Tala and 23 when I had Abudi, um, I've tried not to be, uh, I tried to read them more than say, okay, I know something because I felt like I didn't really know yeah. uh, a lot. Um, and, and that's been a very interesting evolution uh, as a relationship. And I really regard the kids and I have, as having a friendship more and, and, and throughout the time uh, more than a, a parent-child relationship. So that's been certainly um, uh, something very special in my life. And I also feel that that has impacted my work decisions because I really f- felt strongly about not compromising that relationship. Uh, and so I always wanted to see how I can build a work environment that was honoring the relationship that I had with the kids. It meant compromises. It meant rethinking my role as a 
technology um, um, like as an engineer or as an executive uh, later on and then building a work environment that I felt could all that I could when I talk to my children about values when I talk to them about living a life that's meaningful I could say I've done that I'm not just giving you theory about this um, right uh, and and that has also really informed the way that I now like I, I'm, I'm a, a chief operating officer of, a, of an AI company and how that now um, translates to how I nurture the team and, and, and help them grow. So I, I've adopted a service leadership uh, uh, approach, which I think was very similar to my pa parenting approach with, with Tala and Aboudi. I'm here to serve you, tell me what you need from me so I can make it work. Um, and people will tell you what they need if you give them that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And you have some very dope kids. so. I, th I think it worked. Thank you. They're very cool. Thanks. And I, I admire them both. So, well, you mentioned engineering. And so I know that you grew up attending all girls school and then you moved from Saudi to the US. And so as someone who, who was also raised in an all girls school environment for my entire life, I'm wondering how you made the move from that to this sort of male dominated, dominated environment of engineering, because I, Absolutely not. Don't do not think I could have done that. Yeah, I mean, I, looking back, I could see how difficult it was at the time. Um, there's an expression I think that Churchill uh, has said is, "If you're going through hell, keep going." And I just feel like it really was a very challenging <laughs> uh, transition for me. But I was just, you know, I have to go through it. So when I was growing up in Saudi, I wanted to become a doctor. Um, maybe influenced by the fact that. Uh, with Arab parents, you can either be a doctor or an engineer or a, or a, or a lawyer. Those were the key. Mm -hmm. uh, lawyer, um, yep. But I also really felt a calling to helping people and being uh, there with the community. So started university and started studying speech therapy and audiology as a path in pre-med. Alongside engineering, because my dad was saying at the time, computers are all the rage you will really like it, so try it. So I was, <laughs> the first two years of college was a double major in speech therapy and audiology and um, uh, computer science. And uh, oh my because gosh. of my, my um, you know, upbringing in an, in an Arabic uh, school, I really wasn't prepared to do well um, in anatomy and physiology and you know, the very uh, rich textual um, um, subjects. So as much as I loved speech therapy and audiology, I was getting D's and I was getting A's in engineering. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to stop at an associate degree and then turn to engineering because I don't think I can make it. And I mean, I didn't know much. I was 17 at the time, so I switched to engineering, but really my heart was with in medicine. Um, Getting into an all-male environment, I mean, it, it was, I definitely was very shy. Uh, I was very uh, introverted, but I was always one of three girls in a class. And uh, my father would okay. say, well, you know, they don't have anything on you. you know, you're, 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 you're the same. And he did raise us. My dad had a great vision. He raised us in this kind of very neutral environment. You can do anything you want. You can be whoever you want to be. I don't want to hear excuses about boys and girls or religion and non-religion you are who you are and you just measure your success by 
your own uh, doing and not by any external measurement. So that kind of compelled me to keep mm -hmm. at it and do that. Um, thinking back, there was a lot that I didn't know about the male-female interaction. I, I was blind to prejudice, which was a good thing. Um, I just didn't, didn't see that the mm -hmm. boys were getting any favor or that we were getting any favor. It was uh, very neutral. And I was also quite lucky because there were a number of female role models in the School of Engineering, um, professors and students that I've kept with, um, kept up with till today. And uh, one particular lady, Professor Shelley Heller, who now is the chair of the School of Engineering at GW, uh, um, computer science chair, um, has been delightful because she would reinforce those messages that my father was giving me uh, constantly. And I remember when I'd gone back to do my master's and I was a mother and um, uh, I went through a difficult health uh, crisis where I was in and out of the hospital constantly and the doctors couldn't figure out what the root cause of the problem was. And I remember calling her once and saying, I want to get this exam taken, but I, I just can't. I'm in the hospital. And at that point, she said, just focus on you. You'll always have the exam to come back to. And she really gave me an allowance yeah. and the agency to just first prioritize my health, second my family, and then come back and, and do what I really wanted to do and, and finish the degree. Um, and when you have people like that along the way, it, it breaks down any perceived biases. It breaks down any, you always think, well, there's a way. They found it, I found it. There, there must be a way for anything. And they're here to help me. And they're find here to help me way. find it. And if they're not, there's always someone who's here to help. If you just channel that out, and and actually at mm -hmm. times, I, I like that. Well, um, if if I may just add to that, sometimes it comes from the least yes, expected sources. I remember one day I was going through a difficult time, and I um, um, had this book that I cherished that Tala and I would read called "The Jester Has Lost His Jingle." Um, and uh, I always read it to her. It's a book about how this jester comes to uh, uh, amuse the king and the, the, the court, and nobody's laughing. And then um, he goes out in search of laughter, only to find it within after this long journey. And so I was in this dark place at that day, and Tala comes in, she sees me crying, she runs back out, she comes back in with the book. I think she must have been in third grade at the time and starts reading it. And then once she was finished with the book, she turns to me, she's like, you're, all, you're okay now, yes, yes, and walked away. So Aww. even with the little, you know, um, you, you'll find it anywhere if you're open to it, the support. Yeah, and you know, speaking of sort of finding the good and the people to help you, you've been in the social impact space for over 25 years. So I'm wondering how you got started in that space. Thank you uh, for bringing that up. So the, the, the time period that I spent in the hospital was very defining. I mean, I was, I was literally faced with death uh, on a recurring basis. My heart um, um, arrhythmia were, were totally out of bound. I was going from tachycardia one day to fibrillation to heart block. And I was in and out of the hospital um, in, in the ward where mostly over 70 and 80 uh, year old people were in. I came out with a 
a pacemaker wow. and a defibrillator. And I was on a cocktail of medications for about a year. And, and at the time, um, again, I wasn't super aware of it until one day uh, I thought, well, it, the, the, with, my heart was shocked seven times with a defibrillator. Uh, I was t- rushed to the, uh, the emergency room. And I was thinking, this could be it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really, this, this thing is really real. I'm, I can't just keep telling myself I'm going to bounce back. So I spent two days reflecting in um, um, the cardiac intensive care unit. And I couldn't speak to anyone at the time after the, the, the shocks. And um, all I could think of, actually, this nurse came in and said, um, let go of everything and just think of what matters most to you. And so my mind was hyper-focused on Tala and Abudi, who were two and three at the time. And I was imagining Tala, a 16-year-old, in like her graduation outfit and, and how you know, I, was, I could be there for her. And then I, the thought came to me that I come from a line of very strong women, really strong. My grandmother was a glider plane pilot. She had survived a crash and uh, still kept on going. Wow. And I thought, well, they have it in them, and I have those genes, so I'm going to channel those. Um, and that time period defined, or it kind of gives you an opening to what is meaningful and what isn't in life. And so I've often said I've lived my life backwards. I started with the heart attacks and then had to consider, okay, how do you live well if you only have a very short amount of time to live? So... Being an engineer, being surrounded by engineers in a telecom environment, I loved the work and all of the amazing things we were doing, but I always felt something was missing. And so I'd run off on weekends to volunteer at centers for special needs and other places. And, and I really didn't know what I was very passionate about, but I knew that I loved helping. Um, so throwing myself into these situations of helping others I realized I know technology. A lot of the organizations I was working with were devoid of technology. Um, So why not combine the two? So I left my job as a chief operating officer of a company and started a social impact incubator. Um, Because I lacked the passion for any one thing, I thought I can enable others who have passion through technology. And that's how the journey began. Well, I mean, this journey is, uh, you know, I've been reading about it and wow, there's a lot going on in that journey. And you started over a dozen tech ventures with social impact to support Arab youth in conflict zones. And I'm sure there are very many lessons, but what what are one or two lessons that it's taught you? So the first uh, lesson is, is to be open to ideas from everywhere. Uh, and, and if you are open to those ideas, uh, people will show up in your life that are going to help you mobilize. Second, that um, you can mobilize any uh, number of people with, with inspiration and work, and movement building does take time. Mm-hmm. Someone had mentioned this, and so uh, to me it was like never about the quick return, even though all of it, the, the startup industry will tell you show return early and often. Uh, I took a totally different path and said, you know, we're just, it's gonna, it's gonna be slowly. And, uh, but we're building a movement and, and the people that I care for, um, 
are very much worth caring for uh, are responding effectively. And this this is something that is sort of like close to my heart because I um I don't know I feel there's some part of me that's like Palestinian and I I I see similarities in the Palestinian fight for justice close to South Africa and um you know always feel like their youth are missing out on so many opportunities that I don't deserve just because of who I am. I think all of the youth should get this. And so my question is, what do you think is the greatest challenge affecting Arab youth today? Uh, The greatest is not feeling like they're connected to uh, what's happening, like to the rest of the world. Detachment, the lack of connection, the lack of people caring and reaching out to say, look, I see you, I hear you, I'm here for you. I think that is probably... Mm -hmm. Uh, the stem of all problems, it manifests itself in different ways. They're not getting access to education. They're not getting access to employment opportunities. But at the root of all of that, why aren't they getting access? It's because people are turning their attention elsewhere. There are other priorities. And for me, like that, uh, what we started with, with nature, a forest doesn't grow without the littles and the big trees and the, the, the moss and everything else in between that for someone who's not familiar with forests may look at them and think, it's a shrub, it's insignificant. These shrubs can bring down an entire tree. The fungus can bring down an entire population of trees if they're not uh, cared for. So that's, that's why I feel first and foremost is to see and to show care and then comes everything else um i read that you're an aspiring chef (laughs) i'm interested to hear more about that i had to i had to put that in there i wanted to know more so i've always um told the kids i think uh, cooking for people is a way to show love Uh, and i've felt that Mm -hmm. from spending time with my elders in syria my aunts and and uh, how they took such care in making the jams and, you know, and they'll they'll sit and commune probably like in South Africa and cook together. Um, I've also seen and heard from some of my elders that it's, it helps them with grieving. Like I have uh, one of uh, my aunts had said when her husband passed that it was actually, I mean, I say aunt like she's my, uh, uh, but she was Gigi Hadid's grandmother, the, 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 uh, the, the model. So when her husband passed, mm-hmm. she, she would spend her nights cooking for the family. And that's how she consoled herself. She'll just sit and make these grape leaves for like uh, 250 grape leaves rolled and then invite everybody. Oh, that sounds day. good. Yeah. So, so I was inspired by the fact that food is, you know, is um, very comforting for the soul. Um, I've also been taught not to, um, I learned how to cook in college from my roommate's uh, Iranian mother. And she was a, a great chef and she always hosted the extended family to her house, uh, at her house. And so I learned how to cook Iranian food, then I learned Arabic. and. Um, Fusion became a thing. I just love to bring different recipes from different cultures. Um, And with that also getting the kids involved in the kitchen. So it was always making something uh, uh, that was entertaining. Um, 
So I'm always cooking things that are not, uh, that don't follow tradition. So I'll make scones with certain recipes from Syria or, or other places, and I think the kids like that. Well, I mean, now Tala is like making things too, I see. She's cooking and sharing things with people. And she started really early. I mean, I remember them making me breakfast. Uh, I think she was seven years old when she would make breakfast or and, and bring it over with, with Abudi. And uh, she's felt comfortable in the kitchen all along. And I think the both of them are, mm -hmm. are really talented uh, chefs. So you, you mentioned the cooking and comfort, and I want to sort of stick on that comfort line and, you know, speak about tough moments and you obviously had your your health scare that seemed to span a good amount of time and that would be a tough moment but I'm wondering other moments if there's something these days that keeps you going like faith or philosophy or some sort of principle for sure faith I mean I, I grew up with the Islamic faith but I also grew up in an environment where back then in the Middle East whether you were Muslim or Christian or Jew or um, agnostic, there was this common denominator of values that everybody lived by and cared more for, frankly, than they did the religions. Um, and my father was mm -hmm. a constant reminder of that. He wasn't a practicing uh, Muslim. And um, maybe, uh, like, so his faith came from reflection, or his, his values and principles came from reflection. And he would always say, um, the only takeaway from religion is how to treat people with dignity and respect. And mm -hmm. if you treat people with dignity and respect, then everything else aligns. And so when I'm going through a tough time, I often will think, okay, where's the imbalance? What am I not doing right? For others or what am I not doing right for myself and you know sometimes just throwing myself at a cause or supporting a cause will bring back that balance and that feeling of okay I, I can see the harmony now um, that I was missing or, or far away from so it's it's that when challenging times hit there is a discomfort and that discomfort may not be just from within it may be that I'm not doing something for the other and then I'll achieve that balance right that I will say that sounds very Ubuntu of you yeah. yes yes it is mm -hmm. I learned the term recently and I love it I love I mean I, I've, I believe that Africa has a lot to teach uh, all of us and I've loved, I love that that came from there because I totally subscribe to the, to the term and what it means. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think the TED Talk that you did also has very much to do with Ubuntu. Um, it touched me because you were speaking about educating refugees and how that could impact world peace. So could you share more about EdSeed with us? Certainly, thank you for bringing it up. Um, so EdSeed, um, is a passion project. I'd worked with many causes uh, throughout the years and and feel compelled still to support all of them. Um, when I went to a refugee camp for the first time and saw the environment firsthand, and this was a camp that was built 60 years uh, prior to my visit, um, I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine how a young person could actually thrive in that environment without support. Uh, uh, very narrow alleyways that are 
just filthy, neglected um, by the organizations that are supposed to care for them. Over 70% unemployment um, and and a, a, this kind of look of a lack of hope in people's eyes um, and this look of feeling defeated. Um, and I've always mm-hmm. thought that there's, when I, when I worked in these organizations, I could see that younger people still have hope in their eyes and then the, the, the candle just dies Absolutely. as they grow older. So I thought if you can help uh, younger folks, then you'll be able to impact their entire community. And um, Malika Namur, a lady who was already working in uh, uh, making higher education for refugees available in Lebanon, uh, she was helping educate Palestinian refugees, um, gave me this idea because I could see how much they come to life once she starts working with them and giving them hope to go to proper universities and get degrees that they can help take their entire family out of a camp. So being an engineer, I started doing the calculations and thinking, okay, if each one young person was able to impact a family of five or eight, that means effectively by educating 6,000, you can shut down a refugee camp. And that should be our goal collectively mm-hmm. is to take people outside of those environments and bring them into the mainstream communities. Um, and with technology, that's quite doable because you can offer them online jobs. They don't have to be employed locally and compete with the local ecosystem that doesn't have a lot of jobs to offer. So with that, yeah. I thought, okay, I understand technology. I understand crowdfunding. I'm going to create a platform that crowdfunds for refugee higher education. Um, and um, with crowdfunding, you have to have a network to run a successful campaign because the first 10% of the donations you get are usually from the people you know. Um, and that compels others to then donate for you. But refugees don't have that network. So I've leveraged my network to put seed funds and those mm-hmm. seed funds will give any young person that first 10% and then they can go out with the campaign and rally for the rest. Um, we're starting with refugees and youth impacted by conflict, but I would love to make this available to any uh, young man or woman who need it. And I, I, there's no difference between an inner city youth here or some slum somewhere or, or a refugee camp. They're all as deserving of this education uh, funding. So that's where I am. Yeah. yeah. Well, sign, sign me up, hey, please. Yes would love to um to to help i mean so, so then my thing is that the change you're talking about i'm can 100 percent get behind that and i wonder how you know one of my listeners or someone just off the street can help contribute to that change because you know in the u.s we're very much about like charity this charity this and i always wonder like are charities the best vehicle for this kind of change or do we need to be like redefining and reimagining how we actually go about this in the way that you have with EdSeed. For sure, I, I was very skeptical and still am of charity. For me, it's there's definitely a feedback loop with EdSeed. Um, students who graduate are encouraged, uh, who get funded, are encouraged to help others immediately. So they, they're onboarded to the platform mm-hmm. as recipients of, of funds as well as 
volunteers to help others. The message is to build an online community and anybody who wants to come into this community is welcome. So you can sign up and volunteer your time to train, but then also bring someone who's worthy of being campaigned for. Uh, um, you know, so it's not yeah. just about the giving, it's giving and receiving. Um, and you can, you can sign up, you can either fund $5 uh, or you could sign up and train young people on how to create campaigns or you can come and say I have a community in South Africa and they need education and I'm willing to sponsor them as a I'll help onboard them and you know we'll connect you with universities we, we only send the funds to the university um, so if you want to be that champion then we can you know you can start onboarding young men and women from South Africa who are deserving of um, uh, of that, those funds. Who, who would you say are the people that have inspired you? Uh, <laughs> so many. I'm always drawing inspiration from people. I was actually reminded before I talk uh, to go back and listen to your grandfather's speech, uh, the commencement, GW commencement uh, um, of uh, 1998 that I attended. It was my brother graduating. And, you know, so... I think being open to gems from everyone and and hearing those those mm -hmm. gems is is uh, um, will, will help you see inspiration from all over the place. I'm working now with with a gentleman who's very inspiring, um, Hassan uh, Sawaf, who's a German Syrian, uh, so of, of Syrian origin, born in Germany, and he's been a leader in the AI space, and. His mission is to deeply democratize AI, and he will stop at nothing to make sure AI is available for a person uh, walking the streets in um, a refugee camp or to uh, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world and others. And so I think that's a really mm -hmm. admirable approach to say, I know I have access to technology that's very powerful, but my first goal is to make sure it's available to anybody who can use it on equal footing with the powerhouses in the tech world. Um, so he's been an inspiration. My father, certainly an inspiration. Um, I would say I've, I've mostly drawn inspiration from the people that I'm serving uh, and working with, whether it's my children or the youth that I'm working with, of whom I've learned a lot from, um, uh, you know, or, or other communities. I feel like that's a, we all share the same bigger inspirations in our lives, uh, whether it's Gandhi or other, but I mm -hmm. think you can find a lot of inspiration from people you're helping to serve. And when I find that inspiration, I'm much more compelled to serve because I, it's a human to human connection. Um, they're giving me as much as I'm giving them. Well, I have a feeling that people are going to find a lot of inspiration from from hearing you. And so I wonder if you have any advice for young women at this moment. Yes. Um, I, working with young women in the tech space, I've noticed that uh, women are still very shy about being vocal being the first to speak, uh, speaking from the heart. Oftentimes women feel like they need to 
put who they are aside, assume this personality that's very kind of like, yep. you know, matter of fact and this and that. And I want to invite them to see the value of how much they can transform an industry uh, by just saying, I don't understand, please repeat. Use a language that's familiar to me. Um, you know, don't assume that a woman will understand this. Don't assume that uh, anyone else can understand this. Um, so everything that I do is to try and create space for women to be more vocal. Uh, and and, and um, I just w- wish women would really see the power that they have in them to transform industries like banking, like mm-hmm. tech, like government. I mean, we're seeing that more and more, but I think it, the advice is Look within you. There's there's power that's connected to um, nature that you can tap into, maybe even far more than your brothers out there. Uh, so make sure you do that because you'll be helping them more than uh, hurting them or taking the glory or you know whatever other things we tell ourselves <laughs> that prevent us from speaking out. And then, what would you say? Which of your ventures has remained closest to your heart? Baraka bits. <laughs> So Barakabits, I mean, I love Ed Seed and what we're doing today, but Barakabits um, was an idea about um, focusing on good news from the Middle East. And I came up with the idea mm. uh, um, at, a little bit before the, the, the revolutions started. Uh, in my work okay. with young Arab uh, men and women, I realized that there were a lot of gems that were happening throughout the Arab world, um, positive things, positive progress, and yet the news was just so negative and defeating. And I would put myself in the position of these young Arab men and women and look at how I'm being portrayed in international news and feel the the who's telling your story exactly. Yeah, and and so I thought, okay, well, um, I love short form. I'm not volume reader or, or consumer of news and so if we take little bits of baraka and baraka means um, abundance in Swahili in Arabic in Malay in Hebrew so if we take bits of baraka and push them out into the news maybe those could be a source of inspiration we started it as a blog it was my personal blog and then I started rallying people around me and within a year and with the help of my sister who was leading the effort of running it day to day, um, we were able to reach a million views per month, which was huge in 2012 and 13. And it still runs today. The gentleman who runs it was our CTO at the time. He took over the platform and, and he's running it as a business out of um, the West Bank. And it continues to inspire a lot oh, wow. of people. Yeah. So these are my. Um two closeout questions that I think are always the most exciting to ask my guests. And the answers range, but somehow I feel connected to every single one of them. And so the first one is, what is your greatest fear for humanity? The, the, my greatest fear is that we don't um, see the humanity in each other and we are allowing excuses to get in the way, whether it's borders or, or uh, economies or technology. I look at you and I see a sister, a younger sister, uh, or a daughter because you're Tala's age. Um, 
And, and I will always see that irrespective of who you are or where you come from. And my greatest fear is that people allow the external to prevent them from really feeling connected at the heart with everyone around them. Very true. What is your greatest hope for humanity? Hope that enough of us will pay attention to what's happening with technology to make it serve us in the way that it can, which is very powerful, but we need to pay attention um, sooner and all rally around it to nurture it. Like technology to me is like a garden. If you pay attention to it and you give it the right ingredients, it'll grow to serve you with fruits and great, you know, um, beautiful flowers. But if neglected and left for just kind of, just let it grow, it, it may not mm. do that for us. So my hope is that we all gather and leverage where we are today in technology development to make it serve all of us and serve all of us equally. Well, Aunt Rama, thank you for coming on the podcast and speaking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hopefully, um, we can we can all get together with Tala and my mom in in California when COVID has not ravaged us the way it has so far. I hope so as well. I look forward to it, and uh, I'd love to meet your mom and speak with her. And I'm sure Tala would be, would be excited. Although I don't know that I'll get enough airtime if Tala's speaking with us. <laughs> <laughs> After that interview, I don't think so. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.